0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. As this morning we look to conclude chapter 18, beginning with verse 35. Our text will be verse 35 through verse 43. Just remember here as we go through Luke's gospel that we have been reminded on numerous occasions by Luke that Jesus is on a journey, that he has set his heart, he has set his mind and even set his feet to the task of going to and toward the city of Jerusalem. In our previous text, we were reminded of Jesus' awareness of His coming sufferings. As last week, we looked at verses 31 through 34. And there, Jesus' words to His disciples of what was going to transpire once they arrived at Jerusalem. All that the prophets had testified regarding the Messiah, regarding the Son of Man, would be accomplished. And part of that included the mistreatment. That would take place at the hands of the Gentiles as recorded in verses 32 and 33 here of Luke chapter 18. And one might think as Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem and certainly he is becoming coming near and near to that place. And the reality of what is coming upon him is not only being pressed upon his own heart as he has on three occasions spoken to. Specifically to his disciples about this will happen and given more and more details. And as we even thought, considered last week, just the the incomprehensible nature of what Jesus says. This is going to take place. This is what will happen to the Christ, to the Messiah. That he will be to fall hands into the hands of the Gentiles and and looked, has every appearance of experiencing defeat. How is this? How does this mesh with what the scripture says about this powerful and this mighty and this victorious Messiah? Yet we understand and we know the reality of what is coming. You would think at such a time that it would be appropriate for Jesus to begin to, to close the ranks. To begin to... Isolate himself. Do we not have that tendency? We have, we have something big ahead of us. Whether it be a, a large decision. Or something looming upon us. That, that we come to a point. That we, get, we like to be alone. We like to isolate. We like to think through. And perhaps it's a matter of. To pray through some things. As Jesus prepares for. What he is going to face. When he enters into Jerusalem. There would be a, certainly. Some expectation that. It's time to, to close out. To some degree the world around me in which I live. And here we come. As he is entering Jericho. And we still see Jesus. This Jesus. Not consumed with himself. And as much as the reality of what was going to transpire in Jerusalem. Was about him. And it was. It was about Christ. It was about God's redemptive work being accomplished. But Jesus. Refuses to make it simply something about him. And we see the demonstration of his compassion when it would be tempting to be all self consumed. And he reaches out, he sees needs, he hears voices crying out to him, and he meets needs. Begin reading with me here in verse 35 of Luke chapter 18. Through verse 43. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said Lord. I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Here we have this blind beggar here in Luke's account. He doesn't even name him. We do know, according to Mark's account, his name is Bartimaeus, and Mark chapter ten, verses forty-six and following, is Mark's parallel account of this event. We also know that, in, according to Matthew's account, that there was another blind man with him; that there was two. There were two blind men here, but evidently Bartimaeus was certainly one of the lead, and for whatever reason, Luke portrays this story. As just one man. Geographically they are near Jericho. But more importantly. Chronologically. And contextually. In other words. We see the timing of things. But we also see the context in which this encounter takes place. We are not far removed. I hope you remember from. The encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler back in verse 18 and following of Luke 18. And there we had this man, this man who was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, a leader of the synagogue. And certainly we would think that that encounter would be still fresh on the minds of those here with Jesus, this man of, of great wealth and privilege, but this man who heard who he came to Jesus, who came asking we we would think to some degree the right questions, there seems to be some integrity about his pursuit and coming to Christ. But we find that he is a man who is unwilling to exchange earthly treasures for heavenly treasures, according to verse twenty two and verse twenty three. In the mind of the rich young ruler, the loss far outweighed the gain. What Jesus demands of him, of going and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you come, follow me, liquidate and free yourself of these things. Come, follow me, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And this rich young ruler, he couldn't comprehend that too great of a loss and too little to be gained by making such a choice and then we saw immediately following that as this rich young ruler went away said that Jesus spoke out we saw in verse 28 spoke to the Lord on behalf of the disciples Lord we have left our own we've left our stuff we've left our goods and we have followed you So what's in it for us? So the thoughts have been in regard to this rich young ruler and then with the reply there of Peter to a response of Peter speaking to Jesus. The thoughts have been about sacrifices that one would need to make or that one is willing to make in order to be identified with Christ, in order to follow him. But what about... Those who possess nothing of great value. I mean, it's one thing to say to a rich young ruler, you go and you sell all that you have, you give to the poor, and you come and you follow me. But what of those who possess so little? That in fact, if you were to ask and if they were given the opportunity, that they would gladly part with what would be considered by them and anyone else. They would gladly part with their wretched existence. It can't get any worse than this. I need some measure of relief from this. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? With the rich young ruler who comes and Jesus says, you make these sacrifices, you come. And which we saw, they're not really sacrifices if they're understood in the right light, but they were to him. But the question that must be before us today as we look at this text, is there a place for those who have nothing? Those who... You would look to and say, you've got to give all. And they say, I don't have anything. Is there a place for people like that in the kingdom of God? Is there hope for those in the world that tend to be glanced over? Those in the world which many people just simply wish they were not there and just want them to go away. And so it's here we enter with the story of of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. See, Bartimaeus isn't bringing a lot to the table, is he? Bartimaeus doesn't bring any impressive credentials. He's not the kind of guy that follows in the train of Jesus and, and makes Jesus look good. Is there any place in the kingdom of God for people like that? People that you look at and just realize they don't have anything. And we see here the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus that reaches out whether a person be rich, whether a person be poor, or whether he be somewhere in between. The compassion of Jesus to reach out and to, and to bring all for himself To anyone. And that we can proclaim. This Jesus who is full of compassion. Full of grace. To the lowest and to the poorest. Of men. And this morning we want to see. The evidences of God's mercy. To people like that. As we see here in the life. Of Bartimaeus. What are the evidences that God. Would show mercy to the. Down and outers. To the. Nobodies to those who are on the opposite end of the spectrum of the movers and the shakers, these are the people that are they're nothings and they're no ones. What evidence do we see here? Well, we've seen it in other places as well, and going through Luke's gospel, but it's brought to us afresh here as we consider Bartimaeus. First of all, we see the revelation of the Lord, the revelation of the Lord. Here on the outskirts of Jericho, and and incidentally, Mark's uh, Luke's account has this: Jesus was approaching Jericho. And if you look at the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, both of those gospels say that he was departing from Jericho. And I'm not going to go into all that. But if you want to to see that there are plentiful, viable. Proposals that deal with that. So, if this is one of those places where skeptics would look and say, "Aha! Here's your infallible scripture. They can't even get it right. Whether Jesus was coming to or going out of Jericho. If this is the strongest case they've got, they don't have much to build on. And so, if you want to see some of the solutions that are offered, some of your of your uh, study Bibles may even have it in a footnote. There's I've read as many as eight to ten proposals. Many, Some of them, I think, are quite viable. Some, I think, are a bit of a stretch. But we don't have to be concerned about the credibility of the biblical account here. But anyway, we know that Jesus is here on the outskirts of Jericho. And here, blind Bartimaeus, He hears the commotion of this mass of humanity going by Him. And as He hears this commotion, He just simply asks for an explanation. "What's What's going on? What's happening here? And someone speaks to him. They give the answer in verse 37. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And note here the response here that Bartimaeus makes. He says that he calls out in verse 38. He calls out saying, Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? Jesus, son of David. That's not what they said. This is Jesus of Nazareth who is coming by. And the words that come forth from the mouth of Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David. And he repeats that according to verse 39 on multiple times, crying out to Jesus. And what's the significance of this? Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. He attributes to Jesus a messianic title. In other words, he describes, he recognizes that Jesus who is coming by, he is the Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ. And what's the basis for him making such a statement? Well, undoubtedly Bartimaeus, as he has been around, in, at this point, sitting by the city of Jericho, and people traveling by, no doubt he's heard people speak. Of Jesus. He's heard of the things. That Jesus has done. He's heard of his works of healing. His works of deliverances. Demonic deliverances. He's heard perhaps even of Jesus. Raising some from the dead. There's also within Bartimaeus. Evidently some familiarity. With the messianic expectation. He knew to some degree. What to expect when the Messiah comes, and so when he hears this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus of whom he, of whom he has heard so much about, it begins to go through his mind of what's taking place. Even when Jesus was at Nazareth himself, what did he say? Look back with me. Remind here all the way back to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. <clears throat> And here Jesus is in Nazareth according to verse 16. In verse 17, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. He opened the book and He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because He anointed Me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. you think Bartimaeus didn't hear that one? To set free those who are oppressed... "...to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." And then in verse 20, "...and Jesus, He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." What's Jesus doing? He is taking the, the Old Testament Scriptures that refer to the Messiah... The Old Testament Scriptures which these Jewish people knew quite well that they looked to and understood to be descriptive of what was going to transpire when the Messiah comes. And Jesus says today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is claiming nothing less than being the Messiah. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. And then to John's disciples in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 22, John has been imprisoned. And so it says that the Scriptures tell us that he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. In verse 20, it says, they said to Jesus, John the Baptist, I'm sorry, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? You know, John's beginning to have some questions about cousin Jesus. Maybe He's not who we thought He was. Verse 21. At that very time, He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. What did He do? What did Jesus do? He just began to fulfill right before their eyes, Isaiah 61. And He gave sight to many who were blind. In verse 22, He answered and said... You go and you report to John what you have seen and heard. And here it is, the quote. The blind receive sight. Isaiah 61. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So what's Jesus doing? He's identifying himself as the Messiah, and these works that he was doing, these miraculous works. Peter tells us in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-two, which we read just last Lord's Day. <clears throat> but Acts chapter two, verse twenty-two, a very important verse in the understanding of the apostles. Men of Israel, listen to these words: Jesus the Nazarene, a man what? A man attested to you. There was a clear testimony to you affirming that Jesus was in fact the Christ. He was the Messiah of God, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst. He wasn't just doing... Displays and shows he was demonstrating by his deeds. They attested that Jesus Christ, in fact, was the Messiah. So there were these attesting signs of Jesus. But also, not of the attesting signs is the, the messianic expectation that this would be a descendant of David. Matthew 22 41. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. (coughs) What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, they had an answer. They said to him, the son of David. That was the expectation of the day. The Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. So he asked, whose son is he? They said, well, he's a son of David. That we know. Based on what? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. The Old Testament Scriptures as it speaks of the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. This first reference. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. And... Over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, a messianic, clearly a messianic text, book of Isaiah. He is one who will sit upon the throne of David. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5. Isaiah 16, verse 5. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it. In faithfulness in the tent of David, of the tribe of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. Then Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33 verses 14 and following. So again, we're not being exhaustive here, but just enough here to confirm to us that the the Old, Test- the Old Testament Jews expected that the, the Messiah would be a descendant of David for good reason. The Pharisees expected that because that's what the Old Testament spoke of. Jeremiah 33, verse 14 and following Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So evidently, Bartimaeus had some familiarity with the expectation of the day. What the Messiah was to be. He was to be a descendant of David. And as the Pharisees would, were expecting. And rightfully taught from the Old Testament scriptures. So when he cries out. To Jesus. Son of David. That's his messianic term. Messiah. Christ. Have mercy. On me. So what we find here is the reality that blind Bartimaeus sees much more clearly than those with eyes to see, doesn't he? Why is that? Why is it that some... Can see so clearly. And others continue to walk in their blindness. Regarding Christ. What's the distinction? And the only biblical distinction that can be made is this. God's grace of revelation. There's been a work of grace. The beginnings of grace. In the life of of Bartimaeus. In the heart of Bartimaeus. So that he looks to Jesus. As he sees him. Not with the eyes. His physical eyes. But the eyes of his heart. And he understands this. Must be the Messiah. And so the Pharisees and the religious elite of Jesus' day, that they continued in their spiritual blindness against all the evidence. All the attesting signs, all the things that Jesus did, the good things that Jesus did, that there was such virtue in this man and they would accuse him of doing evil. And Bartimaeus, a man who is physically blind, but his heart was opened by God to the truth regarding Jesus and we understand that, don't we? We're reminded again here, aren't we, of the occasions when Je- when Peter makes his profession of confession of faith of of who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Why is it, Peter, that you have such a clear understanding of who I am? It's not because you're so wise. It's not because you've simply been in my company. It's because the God of heaven, God who is my Father and your Father, He has opened your eyes to see. That's why you get it. And the same can be said of Bartimaeus. Why is it that Bartimaeus can make so confidently a, a proclamation? Jesus, son of David. How is it made so clear to this man who can't even see him with his eyes? And we can owe it to nothing other than the grace of God at work in his heart. That grace has already begun in this man's heart. So is there grace? Grace. For such as Bartimaeus, and our answer has to be overwhelmingly yes, and his confession proves that there is grace for such as these. He could not make such a confession, such a profession, such an identification of Christ apart from grace first in his heart. So what do we do? We proclaim Jesus as God's Christ, as the hope for all of mankind. And we're dependent upon God's grace to open eyes. That's what we need. It's not so much that we saturate the society in which we live with the gospel. We proclaim the gospel and trust in that God, by His Spirit, will apply that truth to the hearts of those who hear. And so on many occasions, it will be those who will hear the gospel the gospel for the first time. But they're ready to embrace it because grace has preceded. God has gone before and prepared their hearts to hear. On many occasions, it will be those who will hear the gospel for perhaps the hundredth time. And even then, standing in difference. And they hear it one more time. And the Spirit of God opens their eyes to see. So what do we do? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the message of, of the grace of God, the compassion of God to all men. it makes no difference whether it be rich or poor. The gospel is the same for all. There is a place within the kingdom of God. Such as Bartimaeus. And the proof is that he sees Christ for who he is. Rest confident that God gives grace to the downcast, to the outcast. Those who are most ready to admit their need. Willing to come to Christ. So if there be one, whoever they may be. If they see Jesus. Jesus as the Christ, and they are willing and ready to call upon him to flee to him. We can rest assured if you be genuine, it's because God has opened their eyes that they might come. The revelation of the Lord and evidence of mercy in the life of Bartimaeus. Second thing we see is a recognition of his lostness. A recognition of his lostness. Bartimaeus is pleased to Jesus indicate a bit more. They indicate something of how he views himself in his relation to Christ. Verses 38 and 39 again, he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And again, it's repeated in verse 39. He kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What is the cry here? It is simply a cry for compassion. Simply a cry that Jesus would look upon him and pity him in his condition. Have mercy. There's no claims here on the part of Bartimaeus of, Lord, I really have much to offer you. If I could just see... No claims here of, I'm simply the victim of circumstances. We don't know for sure whether Bartimaeus was born blind or lost his sight. There are some indications in the text that perhaps he he had his sight and that he lost it. When he says in verse 41, I want to regain my sight. And then in verse 43, he regained his sight. But it's not completely clear, even in the original language there. But whatever the case may be, Bartimaeus was a man who was accustomed to begging. You see that in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, he was a blind man sitting by the road begging. And no doubt, being accustomed to begging, he was also accustomed to to the scorn of those who had passed by, those who would steer as far as they could, perhaps to the other side of the the right-of-way, or those who would simply act as if they don't see him. He can't see them, but he hears them, and they know that he knows they're there. Accustomed to the indifference of the passing travelers, no doubt. And he hears this, this movement, this commotion of, of people going by, this crowd surrounding Jesus. And he hears who it is. And for him, this time, Jesus represents hope. It's not the hope of having, having a coin or having a morsel given to him. So and said, he might have another day's meal. There's something beyond that. He knows that with Jesus there is hope for much more than that. If this be the Messiah, if what the Scripture says this Messiah, that he will give sight to the blind, and as no doubt Bartimaeus has already heard that Jesus has performed such miracles already. There's some measure of astounding hope all of a sudden. So what does he do? He cries out to Jesus with only one hope. And what is his hope? The only hope that any one of us have, in that is this, be merciful to me. I understand this is not the same word that is given to us when the, when the, Pharise- when the uh, scribe and, and the publican come to the temple. The publican there, he cries out. He says, God, be merciful to me. And the word there that he uses is the word of, as God, be propitious for me. Deal with my sin. I have sin that needs to be out. That's not the same word here. The word here that this man uses is simply, Lord, pity me. Have compassion. But I say that there's not much difference in the heart here. Here's a man who has a very visible need. And he realizes as he's cried out time and time before for people to have pity upon him. Pity me. Give me a coin. Pity me. Give me some food. Pity me. Give me anything. Here's Jesus. Lord Jesus, pity me. Have compassion on me. There's his plea. He's determined, isn't he? As the crowd comes by, and for whatever reason, we're not told here why, but we could well imagine that in verse 39, that those who led the way, those who led the way, you know, this must be the dignitaries of Jericho or something. <laughs> but these are the people who are leading the way for Jesus. Clearing the path. And here is... This blind, filthy, beggar Bartimaeus by the side of the road, who hears who it is, and he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy in the word. Be quiet. Be quiet. This is not the representation that we want to have of our town, of our community. Be quiet. But he will not be silenced by this inconvenienced crowd. He cries out more and he cries out louder. And then we see in verse 40 and 41, Jesus stops. Jesus stops. And then he does something interesting. Jesus doesn't go to him. Jesus commands that he be brought to him. See, Bartimaeus, he doesn't, doesn't have the host of friends there with him like the man who is paralyzed and had his four friends who, who lowered her down through the ceiling at the feet of Jesus. This man is here alone. There's no one helping him. No one here that has a vision of, hey, here is Jesus who does miracles, who heals sick and blind. Here is Bartimaeus, a blind man who could use some help. No one makes that connection. Do they? All they think is, here is Jesus... This great man who does great things, here is Bartimaeus. Never shall the two come together. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. There's no one showing compassion toward Bartimaeus. But Jesus stops and He commands that Bartimaeus be brought. (laughs) You have to wonder there who, who had to go get him. I wonder if it were not some of those who had been previously saying, shh, be quiet. Shut up. I wonder. And Jesus commands that Bartimaeus be brought. And Jesus asks him a question. What do you want me to do for you? How would you like to have that question laid at your feet by God Himself? What do you want me to do for you? He leaves it in Bartimaeus' hands. What do you want me to do? So, Bartimaeus just gives a very simple, a very practical Answer, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Receive my sight. And we see this grace-filled response. In verse 42, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Grace-filled because it is without rebuke. This isn't a very special. Spiritual request, is it? Lord, I really need my sins forgiven. And while you're at it, there's this thing about my vision. No rebuke. In fact, Jesus commends his faith. Your faith has made you well. And we understand, biblically, that faith is the gift of God. So what do we see here? Jesus commending God's gift at work within Him. He commends the faith that He has given to Him. Your faith has made you well. Bartimaeus, well, he knew his lostness. Please only for mercy. And he's not condemned. And you know, he's, you look at this, it's not, the, it's not the purest of motivations to come to Jesus, is it? But he does great things anyway, doesn't he? How many of us come to God always with the purest of motivations? And he still shows his Compassion. Boy, I don't. I, my motivations, I ask many times because I'd like for you to say, I wanted it, you to do this, Lord, for your glory. But the reality is I wish you would do it just for me. <laughs> just do something for me. And what compassion. As a man who is really to recognize his own lostness and his cry as God, be merciful. Be merciful. Have compassion. Have pity. Me, don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I need. What a safe place to be. For one to recognize their utter despair. To one to recognize their absolute unfitness. To come before God. To be absolutely dependent upon God's intervening grace and mercy. That's what I need. Christ, I need mercy. I need Grace, nothing to bring to Jesus of any value, nothing of any worth. And even in Matthew's account, the little robe that he had on, he says he threw it off. It's probably filthy, threw this whole thing off and came to Jesus. And in fact, Lord, for, for you to receive me, if anything, is going to bring a reproach to your name. When anyone sees himself as he truly is before God, it's only because God's mercy is near. Bartimaeus would never have seen his lostness apart from the presence of God's grace. There is grace for such as this. Here's the proof. He's a man who's aware of his need of Christ and that the only basis that he has for coming is this one's mercy. This one's grace poured out. So I need not despair that there is insufficient mercy for someone such as me however I might be myself that God's mercy is sufficient Christ receives sinners and we're going to see even that next week Lord's willing as we look at the first part of 19 chapter 19 the life of Zacchaeus and the last of the words of that section verse 10 for the Son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's for people like this that Jesus came. I think there's something of a side note that we need to consider here. And I wonder how often that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been very much like this crowd. When we can see people who are not Like us. We see people who. Quite frankly. We don't want to be around them. We would just as soon. Ignore ignore them. Wish they weren't there. Because we like the church. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be made up of people. Like us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be made up with people that we like. And I just can't help but wonder at times, sometimes the reason that we we see such a coldness to the gospel in people is because we're trying to take the gospel to the wrong people. You know, we've we've got our little box in our minds of what kind of people we want to be in church with us. And if we see someone or encounter someone in the world that they don't fit that concept, that mold, let's make the conversation go on. Let's go on and be done with them and may they never come back again. Now, do you know what I'm talking about or am I the only one guilty of such things? You know, there is something to taking the gospel to the down and outers and the people who run the risk of if you bring them into your church, they might contaminate us. They might ruin our children. And folks, if that is our, if that is our heart toward those who need the gospel, God be merciful to us as a people and as a church and may He close our doors I was speaking with uh, Pastor Martin in Middle Tennessee about the church in Owensboro, Kentucky, I went to a few weeks ago, to the pastoral counseling class. And one of the men on staff there, he had conveyed, he had preached at Hartsville, at Grace Baptist, and he was in conversation with him and just talked about his going from a former place of ministry to where he is now. And he's, this was his description. He says, the place where I served before, and speaking of his church, the place where I served before was all about putting up walls. You know, let's protect it, let's insulate ourselves from all the world out there. And if anybody comes to come in, we've got to sanitize the real good before there's any serious consideration of coming to the church. But he said, the place where I am now, speaking of the church in Owensboro, he said, it's all about building roads. Avenues of of reaching people. Instead of figuring out all the people I want to separate myself from. And all the people that I don't think I want to come into, quote, my church. Are we going to be about walls or are we going to be about roads, folks? I just confess to you I don't have near the heart of compassion that Jesus did because i'm I'm very quick to build a wall and God help us to see those people in that God brings in our lives that are people that are genuinely people of need people that perhaps are more ready to respond to the, to the gospel than someone who has everything that they need. Life's going quite well, thank you. I don't really need Jesus. And I fear that much of the time, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is much like this crowd. They're leading the way for Jesus. And let me tell you, they're leading the way, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. As we build our little safety boxes, safety churches, insulated in every way that we can imagine from any outside influence of the world. Folks, if you bring in sinners, sin's going to be there. God help us. And give us a balance. You know, I get calls every week here at the church. People needing this and that. You know, I understand there are people who who run the system. I understand that. And I also understand that we don't have any money to help anybody with either. So that's kind of simplifies things. <laughs> but at the same time, I have to confess that many times I'm just ready to get off the phone and be done with it. don't know these people. I don't want to take the time for these people. And again, a pastor, I can't do it all. If I, if I took every one of those calls and gave him two hours my week would be consumed but on the other hand who are the people that we that we see and for some reason there's no thought in our minds of I wonder if they've heard the gospel I wonder if anyone shared Christ with them I wonder if God is, is doing anything in this person's heart preparing something of the way Do we recognize the lostness of the lost? And finally, the redirection of this life. And I know we're late. I'm not going to take a lot of time here. This life was a life that was simply dramatically changed. Not simply because he had his eyes, his sight restored, but a new life, of course, was set. He began a life of discipleship in verse 40. He regained his sight and began following him. Began following after Christ. A spontaneous response of a heart that has been genuinely transformed by grace. He is attracted to Jesus Christ and he follows after him. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Pretty simple. That Jesus is more than a healer to this man. He is his Lord. He is his God. But also a life in doxology. Verse 43. He went forth following him and glorifying God. And what's the fruit of a life that is lived in doxology? Other lives begin to praise and to glorify God. Now what a wonderful gift, isn't it? What a wonderful privilege. And an evidence of grace to be made a worshiper of God. But also... To become the means whereby others give praise and glory to God. Jesus, his mercy and His grace for the poorest, for the lowest of people. May we demonstrate such as well when we share the Christ. Let's determine that the gospel is not just for middle class America, the gospel for all who would hear. So we proclaim it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you have been gracious to us. And many times we think for all the wrong reasons. But that your grace lies within who you are. Give us grace as a church, families, individuals. To proclaim this Christ. To the down and out. To the cast down. To the outcast. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.